Amen. Thank you so much, Brother Wes and choir and orchestra. We are grateful for you leading us to that place of understanding that Christ is our glory. I want to invite your attention to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark in the New Testament. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to Mark chapter 8. We're continuing in a year-long series that we've called Read the Book, and our focus is on a chronological understanding of the story of the Bible. And we've come to the New Testament, and we're beginning to look at some events from the life of Jesus, from eyewitness accounts, and today we're going to look at one of those miraculous stories in the life of Jesus from Mark. And as we look at Mark's gospel, I want us to see really two distinctions let me say it this way, a story and a plot are two different things. Let me put it on the screen, a story is a series of events, usually in chronological order. Obviously, when we have a story, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's an introduction to what is going on, and then there's usually some climax of tension, and then there's a resolution at the end. So that's what a story is. Well, a story can be quite different from a plot. You see, a story is just this series of events, but a plot is a series of events that are deliberately arranged as to reveal various things about them, their theme or their dramatic significance, their emotional significance. So here's how I'd want to divide it out. A story basically answers the question, what's going on? What's happening? But a plot answers the question, why is it happening? And here's why I would take time to even make that kind of an introduction. If we're not careful, we'll look at the storyline and we'll miss the plot line. Sometimes we'll look at what's going on and we'll miss why it's happening. Why in the world would this story that we're going to read from Mark chapter 8 be included in Scripture? You see, if you look at the story, there's a miraculous thing that happens. Jesus feeds a mound of people. There's a huge throng that has followed him, and he feeds them in a miraculous, supernatural way. And the people that were there were so grateful that he did because their storyline had been, we're following the miracle worker. We're following the one that can perform these kinds of deeds. But if they were not careful, and Jesus tried his best to be careful not to let them miss the plot line. We don't want to miss what's going on. So this week in our Bible reading, we've been reading the book of Mark, and as we have, Mark begins to lead us in understanding a series of, of time where Jesus was training his disciples. He was training his 12 apostles, and he seeks to instruct them on what his ultimate plans are. It's fascinating if you read this in context, you begin to see that he has left the nation of Israel and he's gone up into the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I should have put a map up on the screen, but if you were to look more centrally located in this whole Palestinian region, you would understand the Sea of Galilee is there and Jerusalem and Bethlehem are there and Tyre and Sidon are far to the north and to the west up on the coast. And so he's left the region where we would most familiar uh, with with most of the stories in Capernaum and all of those regions and he's gone up into Gentile regions far outside the scope of normal Israel normal uh, Jewish settlement and so as he goes there on the coast of Palestine we don't have any real recording of what he taught his disciples we don't have those sermons. We have some public occasion, but he is pouring into them and training them. And the question is, what's he teaching them? 
Well, we can pull that theme out of the public and recorded messages that we have. Here's the theme. He's trying to get them ready for the Great Commission. He's trying to prepare them to understand that, yes, I came to Israel, but he came to his own and they received him not. And he is trying to teach them that beyond the Jews, that the gospel message is for the whole world. That ought to be something that you would say hallelujah to because we're included there. It was not just to a specific ethnic group of people. It was to whosoever would believe. And Jesus takes them out of Israel and moves them north so that they can begin to see he's going to do miracles among the Gentiles and show that the light has come not just to his own but to the entire world. You see, Jesus can't drop that on them at the Great Commission. He can't just at his last request say, go and make disciples of all nations. He can't do that to a group of people who have believed all of their lives that we are the chosen, that we are the people of God, that we are the covenant people. Those Gentiles are outside the covenant, and he can't possibly be talking to them. And if Jesus had waited till the end of his life just to pronounce that to his disciples, they probably would not have gotten it. And so the story is such that Jesus goes to this region of the Gentiles, and he performs incredible, incredible miracles, but he is training them uh, and preparing them for the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Well, obviously we know, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature from Mark's account. In Matthew's account, go and make disciples of all peoples and teach them to obey or observe everything that I've commanded you. Jesus spent almost a third of his ministry, his three years of ministry, he spent almost a third of it among the Gentiles. And that may be in some ways shocking to you to think about, but as we look at the chronology and the geography of his ministry, we begin to get a sense of his mission and his ministry and his purpose to the Gentiles, and we ought to be thankful for that. Well, we begin the account in chapter 7 of Mark's gospel in verse 31. I want us to look there together in Mark chapter 7 verse 31. Let me read to you the word of God from this place. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and to the region of the ten towns which is known as the Decapolis. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man and to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epitha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. 
It's an interesting background for the miracle that we're going to study. Today we're actually going to study from Mark 8. But as you see this, Jesus has already been freeing people of demon possession. And here he encounters this man who is deaf and dumb, so to speak. He cannot speak and he cannot hear. And they bring him before Jesus and Jesus heals him. Now, Mark is careful to tell us where he is. Look again at the top. He left Tyre and Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee. You see, for almost eight months, he's left the region of Galilee and gone north into Gentile country. And he's going to leave there, and he comes northward and then eastward down into what they would call the wilderness of this area of the Decapolis. There are ten Greek cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And instead of going directly from Tyre and Sidon straight down to Galilee, he sort of makes a jaunt in a different direction. It's kind of strange, and I want you to equate this in your mind to what would be going on. This would sort of like be saying, I'm not, I need to go to Hattiesburg from Memphis. And so I'm going to drive from Memphis to Hattiesburg, and I'm going to do so by way of Birmingham or Montgomery. I could come straight down, and yet I'm going to take a detour, and I'm going to go far east, and I'll go through those cities before I make it to Hattiesburg. That's what Jesus does here. And you would say, that seems so strange. Well, he's embedding his ministry even deeper into the Gentile region, and as he does that, we can see that he is teaching his disciples much about what he would want them to have or know. He wants them to know that Gentiles can receive truth. They can receive God, and they can do so by faith. One of the first lessons I want you to jot down somewhere, this seems so obvious and overstated, but we must act in faith toward God. We must act in faith toward God. That's the thrust of Jesus healing this man. When you think about his condition, think with me for a moment. I, I cannot imagine this impediment. It seems to me that being unable to speak and unable to hear would be one of the most crippling possibilities of life. He is shut off from society in a very harsh way. More than likely, because of this time frame, he was not able to read. And so he is in some way cut off from uh, and shut off from the light of God in Scripture. I mean, he would have such frustration because he cannot speak and because he cannot read. He couldn't hear a testimony of somebody that's been healed. He is in complete isolation from the world. This man who could not speak, who could not hear, represents an incredibly difficult person to reach. Would you not agree? This is audience participation time. You can at least nod your head. This guy would have been very challenging to read. He can't uh, reach. He can't hear. He can't speak. And Jesus comes into his presence, and Jesus heals him in a unique way. Now, it's kind of strange, but it explains some things to me about what Jesus did first. The very first thing our text says, Jesus pulled him off to the side. I, I would venture a guess that it would be in some ways embarrassing to have this kind of an impediment. I mean, if he was blind, people could notice that and see that and make exception to it. If he was crippled in some way, they would obviously see his deformity. But because he looks from every uh, outward glance to be fairly normal, you might speak to him and he not respond. You might become offended over that. My kids laugh at me over my partial deafness. I don't know if I've just shot guns too many times and, and have ringing in my ears. My wife says it's selective hearing and selective deafness, and I hear what I want to hear. That's another sermon for another day, and I don't need for her or my mom or for my mother-in-law to say amen to that. Y'all, we'll, we'll deal with that later, okay? Just calling them out. 
but, but this man, you would speak to him, and he wouldn't respond. And it had to be incredibly frustrating to him and to those around him. And Jesus pulls him off to the side. And I want you to see this. This is a beautiful picture. Our Savior sticks his fingers in his ears. I would imagine that for the first time in a while, somebody's communicating with him in a way that he could receive, in a way that he could understand. He may not fully know exactly what Jesus is going to do yet, but when he touches his ears, perhaps he's saying maybe, just maybe, in some way, he is going to restore that which is lost. And then Jesus spits in his fingers and he touches his tongue. It sounds like a strange thing to do, but he's going to loose his tongue and he's giving him a visible demonstration. And I I just have to confess that until this current study this week in Mark's gospel, I really didn't fully understand it. Maybe I don't yet, but I, I just began to think unquestionably Jesus wants to arouse and awaken his faith. He's not interested in just healing his tongue and healing his ears. He wanted in a very special way for him to recognize that it is the God of heaven who has the ability to do so. And so he looks up to heaven as to indicate that the power for his ears to be healed and his tongue to be loose would come from heaven. And then he utters with a a beautiful sigh. I don't think it's exasperation. It's a sigh almost showing him that the invisible, unseen God would be the one who would heal him. And he speaks this word, be opened. And all of a sudden, the man can hear. Now, I want you to see this with me. Don't get lost in the, or or don't lose sight of the story. This man immediately began to speak. Most of the time, when somebody has been deaf and they have restored hearing, it takes them time to learn how to speak. Immediately, his tongue was loosed. Jesus, in all of his power, touches this Gentile man in this Gentile region, and all of a sudden, this man responds in a glorious way. Now, the people around him see nothing more than the miracle, but the man with great faith sees the miracle worker. You see, they were looking for the outward signs, and he was looking for the Savior. I want you to see this. This man instantly began to speak, and that was the Lord's way of showing us this, that faith is a necessary ingredient to receive anything from God. Would you agree with that? I said we must act toward God in faith, and now I would say to you, if you're going to ever receive anything from God, including salvation, it must come through your attitude of trust. Faith is nothing more than believing in the activity of an invisible God. And despite the fact that you cannot see Him, you would trust Him. You would place your faith there and know that He's ready to work in your life. So He awakens this man's faith. And He caused him to believe in the invisible. He caused him to see the unseen. And the essence of divine activity among men is that we would trust God kind of interesting in verse 36 and 37 immediately Jesus said to him don't tell anybody he he tells them he says to the crowd don't tell everyone but the more he told them not to verse 36 the more they spread the news notice that the pronouns change up to this point Jesus has been dealing with this man as an individual and now he speaks to the crowd and the verb tense says he kept on telling them don't speak this And I believe the reason why is because the faith of the crowd and the faith of the man are on two totally different levels. The crowd saw the actions of God and the man saw the God of those actions. 
I'm afraid that there's a generation of people even today that are looking for outward signs. They'll go and follow the biggest crowd because they want to see what's happening somewhere else. And my principled focus for you today is that we must act in faith that even when things don't seem like they're moving and shaking in different directions, even when we don't see uh, uh, total visible manifestations of miracles, that we can trust that God is able. You see, this man experienced a phenomenal miracle. But the miracle was that this Gentile man had received light from heaven. When Jesus spoke the word and said, be open, he was set free. Now, as we move forward, this crowd with its low level of understanding began to emphasize uh, the mere spectacular. They began to disperse all of this message. Jesus warned them, don't tell it. And what I would say is this, when your faith is fixed on God, not on what he does, but who he is, then it's safe to be a witness to those around you. You see, Jesus didn't warn this man, don't tell it. He warned the crowd because they just wanted people to see the miracles. Now, that brings us to the account in chapter 8. I, I want you to, to see that, though. Some of you have been silent. You've been mute in your witness. Maybe it's because your witness is based on what God can do for you or for others. And not simply on the beauty of who God is. And my encouragement there is as we see this next miracle, you would move forward in the story in your thinking by faith. Let's look together at chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. About this time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for, or it says in other translations, I have compassion for these people. They have been here with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. I, if I send them home hungry, they'll faint along the way. I mean, these people literally have been waiting for miracles for so long that they've decided we'll not eat and they've wandered into the wilderness to follow after Jesus. Now let's pick up in verse 4. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do we have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about how many men in the crowd? How many? 4,000 men in the crowd that day. Jesus sent them home after they'd eaten. Immediately after this, he got into his boat and he crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, think about this. You might think that I made a mistake. Pastor, I thought Jesus fed 5,000. Well, when you read the gospel here, no, it's not 5,000. It was 4,000. How many of you know that Jesus did both? Jesus said 5,000 at one sitting and 4,000 at another. And this is significant to the plot line, not just the storyline. Because he did these two different miracles in two different settings, one in the region of the Jews and one in the region of the Gentiles, there's a very distinct purpose here. Now, I also want you to remember this, that they counted men. They said that there were 5,000 men in the crowd in the earlier 
uh, account in Mark 6 and here in Mark 8 that there were 4,000 men. They were not being chauvinistic. They were simply counting family units. They were saying that there could have been upwards of 12 to 16,000 people. 4,000 men, 4,000 wives, and then potentially four to 8,000 more kids. When he fed 5,000, there could have been 15 to 20,000 people present. In fact, that account may have been the largest crowd that Jesus ever spoke to or ministered to at once. But here we see a second feeding. Now, a lot of people have tried to confuse these and say, Aha, we have the Bible. There's total contradiction here in Mark's account with the other accounts. Not so at all. You see, the similarities between the accounts don't at all make us lend uh, or lend us to understand these as one account or one event. There is another account. And in fact, Matthew and Mark both are very careful to tell us these two events happened in different places. Look with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8, verse 18. I just want you to, to notice this very quickly. I won't have it on the screens. Jesus spoke to both of these accounts. Look at it where he says, Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And then verse 20, And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. So this is a different time of feeding, and these are very similar, and bread and fish were both used. However, the Lord multiplied them and brought miracles to them. And so here's the question of storyline and plot line. Pastor, you've told us what's going on. Why is it happening? Let's learn together this morning. Part of the answer is that Jesus was doing among the Gentiles that which he had already done among the Jews. He's training his disciples that one day I'm going to leave and all the world needs to hear and know this good and glorious gospel. All of the world needs to know that relationship with God is possible for them. And it transfixes uh, time and comes all the way to today, to Hardy Street Baptist Church. You today need to recognize that Jesus Christ makes available to you the power of heaven for you to receive eternal life. He makes available to you and me the opportunity to be reconciled to God. And Mark makes clear the basic proposition all starts with the compassion of Jesus. I love that phrase. It says, I feel sorry for them. He was moved with compassion toward them. There was never a place for them to wonder. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, I have a desire to meet the needs in their lives. And it's interesting, just as he had anticipated spreading abroad the news of the healing of the deaf and dumb man that had brought the people streaming out of the cities, they were there to see the miracle worker. And Jesus didn't want them to miss the plot line and simply see the story of miracles. Three days they had hung around and they'd not eaten and they were famished probably out there in the wilderness. The word wilderness literally means that at this place the grass had been trodden down. There was no place for them to find anything but barrenness. And they were not content with just being there listening. They wanted to see with their eyes. They lingered longing for a miracle. And Jesus says, I'm not going to send them home because they'll faint on the way. And, and he does not want to do more miracles just to bolster their desire to see miracles, but he does want to prove the point that he is the miracle worker. What did he want the disciples to learn from this? What does he want you and me to learn from this? What is the plot line, Pastor, that I need to grab? Three very simple thoughts. Number one, write this down. Begin with what you have. Begin with what you have. 
When you want God to act in your life, don't wait for God to do everything. He expects us to be involved. Start with what you have. Jesus immediately says, how many loaves of bread do we have? What do we have? And they said to him, seven. Now, I know that you've seen the pictures that they look like French bread baguettes. And we need to help God somehow that if we had seven loaves of French bread, then it would be easier to explain this miracle. These are small little flat bread uh, cakes, if you will, that, that they would have brought. When we have the feeding of the 5,000 and there's five loaves and two fish, no Jewish mama would send her boy home with two baths that you would hang on the wall and five loaves of French bread. No, these were simply little bitty, uh, probably tilapia, these small little fish. They would have been much smaller than you would think, probably like sardines and small little flatbread cakes. But Jesus said, bring me what you've got. And he brings to them the seven, and as they bring the seven, they uh, begin to see God blessing it. You see, we pray hard in so many ways and ask God to do all kinds of things without lifting a finger. God alone can do the miracle. We can bring the bread, but he has to multiply it. But the bread needs to come. You start with what you have. We can fill the jars with water, but he must turn them into wine. You've probably heard the old story of the man who was in the middle of a torrential flood after a hurricane. He was on top of the roof of his home, and a boat came by, and and you would think that there is his rescue. And he said, I'm waiting on Jesus. I'm waiting on Jesus. And he turned the boat away, and the boat left, and a second boat came, and he said, I'm waiting on Jesus, I'm waiting on Jesus, and the boat left him, and a helicopter came and said, sir, you must get on. He said, I'm waiting on Jesus to save me, and he drowned in the water and goes to heaven, and God says to him as he's looking at him, I sent you provision, and he said, I was waiting on you to save me, and you never came, and he said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. For us, sometimes we expect God to do everything and somehow we have in our mind that we should do nothing. And God's providing, but he's saying start with what you have where you are. Some of you need to take what God has given to you this very week. I don't know who this message is for, but in this miracle, I see Jesus moving outside of the preconceived notions. He moves out to the Gentiles and makes available to us the power of God. And then he says that you have a responsibility. Begin where you are. Years ago, I heard of a young Christian in the glow of his new relationship with Christ who was walking along a country road, and this old-time preacher told the story. He was hungry, this young believer, and he prayed that God would provide food. And a bread truck passed by, and a loaf of bread fell off the back of the truck. And this was his response. Rather than running and picking it up, the young man sat down and prayed, Lord, if you intend that bread to be for me, then cause it to come to me through the air. There's such a foolishness to us expecting God to do that which he's already done. God has already done everything that needs to be required for your salvation. Some of you say, I don't trust the Lord. I'm not sure that I can trust the Lord. When you begin to see the compassion of Jesus in this story, you see he's done everything he needs to do for you. And he's asking you to willingly come to him. Pastors often gather together and And they ask the question, how do you get a church to begin practicing body life and living out the fire of the Lord? I've seen this over and over again. Pastors find themselves discouraged and they say, how do you change a church and get it to, to start right where it is? And ultimately the answer is right there. You start. Draw a circle around yourself. Start in your home. Get a group of people around you who feel as you do and start with them. 
My grandfather used to say, there's a time to plow around the stumps. You know, sometimes we just need to stop and say, God, why aren't you doing all the things that we would long to see here in our church and in our community? And I think we need to stop thinking that way and say, God, you've given us an incredible opportunity to pray. I want to go back to what happened Friday night a week ago. We had uh, close to a 1,000 people praying all over the state. There were churches everywhere that signed people up to pray for 24 hours. And it was an amazing thing. We're going to do it again the first Friday of November. I want to encourage you to sign up. When you say, well, I'm not sure what I can do, there's one thing. Sign up and pray for an hour. We've given you a community prayer guide, and you can take that and just cry out for our city officials and for our schools and for health care and fire and EMS. And when you and I begin to do that, we'll begin to see God move in incredible ways. I'm not trying to manufacture movement. I'm trying to speak to you in very simple spiritual principles. Begin with what you have. Give that to the Lord, and He can and will multiply. Number two, I want you to see this. The very uh, lesson that we needed to learn beyond that is this, that God wanted them to see that His supply will always equal the demand. His supply will always equal the demand. I love what happened in this text. It's wonderful to see how in the original language it says that he took the seven loaves and broke them, but the English really doesn't fully convey. It's he kept on breaking them. He kept on breaking them, and the disciples kept on feeding the people. It wasn't as if he built up a great pile over here, and they came to the pile. He just continually kept breaking the bread, and in a creative miracle, making bread that had never, ever grown as grain, he manufactured it. And the picture there ought for us to see that he alone is our provision, not the provision itself. The people were looking for the miracle. The man who had been healed and those who were fed began to see the miracle worker. I've told you this over and over again. When Jesus told us to pray for daily bread, I find that to be very difficult. And the reason why is I don't need Jesus for daily bread. I have a pantry and a deep freeze and a refrigerator. And if I'm not careful, I'll look to my own provision rather than to the one who provided it. And you and I need to begin with what we have and give it to the Lord and recognize that His supply is fully ample for everything that we need. His supply meets the demand. Don't look at the things that you have without looking at the fact that they came from Him. He wanted them to learn this lesson. His miracle is done on a physical lesson, but He wanted them to learn in a spiritual sense that the greatest need of their life was not physical food, but it was a spiritual hunger that only He could satisfy. Today, some of you have come into this place, and maybe you're battling spiritual hunger. Maybe you've already got on your mind where you're going after this. But maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here with a spiritual hunger. Maybe there's somebody here today that is longing for a deep sense of satisfaction. And I want you to see that God can and will satisfy the deepest longing of your heart and your soul. And it comes from the Word of God. Jesus himself demonstrated it for us when he was tempted. He said, man does not live by bread alone. And that's what he's saying to us today, that we need to invest our minds and our lives in the Word of God and let the Word of God nourish us in such a way that it would give to us spiritual health. You cannot keep your spirit strong if you don't feed it. And Jesus was teaching them that lesson. 
That's really the lesson of the whole account here. That's what the disciples were expected to, to learn and to know. One final lesson I want us to see. We need to begin with what we have and bring it to the Lord. We need to recognize that His supply always meets demand. But thirdly, I want you to see this. His resource is always sufficient. It's implied in the fact that seven baskets were left over. These are hampers, by the way. In the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, the word basket, they had 12 that were left over. Probably indicative of the 12 tribes of Israel or the, the 12 disciples. It's kind of interesting that there was a perfect leftover amount that would fully satisfy all of them. And here we move into this region where there's at least uh, in, in their minds uh, a great need for the gospel to go. In Jesus' mind, he's telling them that it's there. And here this number seven is completeness. And, and there in this place of lack, this wilderness, there was everything they needed. In the first feeding, they're more like lunch pails. In this one, they're like laundry hampers. They're huge baskets. And he's saying that it's running over. And the way to know him is to learn to feed upon him in daily satisfaction and know that he will give you everything you need. You know, feeding on Christ is a lesson that they needed to learn. They learned to worship. They learned when Jesus is all I have, I recognize he's all I need. That he for me will begin to be what God has said in this that His riches and glory will supply every need according to Christ. That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And for you and for me today, we begin to see what He does, He does perfectly well. I would imagine this was the best meal that they had ever eaten in their entire lives. Not because of the quality of the, the food, but because of the source of provision. The supply is not superficial, it's not minimal, it's more than enough. It's full satisfaction. I love this. It started where? With the compassion of Jesus. We read in our text, I have a compassion toward these people. His compassion reached the greatest point, the apex, if you will, at the cross. Listen to Hebrews 2:17. Therefore, he has made to be like his he had made to be like his brothers in all things that he might become merciful and faithful as a high priest in the things pertaining to God. He had to become a man so that he might become a merciful, compassionate, faithful high priest for you and for me. And how did he show that compassion by making propitiation, by satisfying the righteousness of God and by giving himself to us. Oh, Romans 5:8 tells us that he demonstrated his love, his compassion toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to see the apex of Jesus' compassion? It's not in feeding 5,000 or 4,000. It's not in saying be open to the tongue of a man who had been deaf and dumb for his lifetime. It is on a rugged Roman cross. It is in the cruelty of that crucifixion, but not that the Romans put him there. Your sin put him there. My sin put him there. And his love held him there. He didn't stay there because they put him there. He could have called down 10,000 angels. He could have judged the whole earth. And yet he took upon himself the judgment for the sins of the world in the cross. It's one thing to feed a hungry crowd. It's something else to pay the full penalty for their sins. Right? 
It's one thing to satisfy three days hunger. It's another thing entirely to satisfy spiritual hunger for all eternity. It's one thing to feed someone a morsel of food. It's yet another to satisfy fully and completely the perfect, holy righteousness of God the Father. So when you and I begin to talk about the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Christ, we're talking about the cross, the greatest display of compassion. He was willing to go to the cross and to bear the full weight of divine punishment for all of our sins in order that you and I might be delivered from hell. And as I began to think about that, he is compassionate not only over our physical needs, more importantly and more profoundly over our spiritual needs. I love this story. In all of the chronology of all of the studies we've read and all of the building anticipation of the work of the prophets, literally over hundreds of years, longing for one that would come, they would see, oh, he's coming for us, the covenant people. And what we understand more clearly is he's coming for whosoever will, by faith, trust him. Have you trusted him today? Are you trusting him today? Because Jesus stands willing to break forth the bread of life. He said of himself, I'm the bread of life. I will completely satisfy you. I pray that this week you would recognize him as the provider of every good and perfect gift. I pray that this week you would recognize that he is the one that longs even more than we could ever long for us to live righteous lives. And his desire is that we would walk in full abundant blessing. That we would not walk in despair or disgrace or depression, that we would walk in fullness of joy in Him. Oh, may that be said of each of us, that we might be light in dark places. You see, Jesus left Galilee and went to this region so that He might disperse the light and dispel the darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time together. Thank You for this day of worship and this time together. I pray, God, that You would work in the hearts of people, that their lives would be opened just as this man's ears and mouth was opened, and just as these who hungered so desperately physically, God, I pray that people that are here this day would be filled spiritually and satisfied completely. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.